Welcome to Talking Feds, a roundtable that brings together prominent figures from government law and journalism for a dynamic discussion of the most important topics of the day. I'm Harry Littman. It was a week in which federal and state actors went directly into the buzzsaw of several of the most polarizing issues that are afflicting cultural and political life in the United States. It's now clear that the Department of Justice has launched investigations that look beyond the actual events on the ground of January 6th, but their scope remains unclear, as does the possibility that they have or will have Donald Trump in their sights. Not so on the 1-6 Congressional Committee, whose vice chair made clear the committee's belief that it has assembled evidence sufficient to prove federal crimes by the former president which has given rise to a debate within the committee about whether it should make a criminal referral of Trump to the Department of Justice. President Biden held a Rose Garden event on guns that was ambitious in vision but relatively limited in substance. The main announcement was a move within the executive branch to crack down on ghost guns, which are linked to a growing number of crime scenes in recent years. But Biden also took the opportunity to call for a far broader agenda, including universal background checks, and seems to have determined that it's a worthwhile topic to engage the entrenched Republican opposition approaching the midterm elections. As the country holds its breath awaiting the Supreme Court's abortion decision, many states have been busy passing ever more restrictive anti-abortion laws. These appear to guarantee that the Supreme Court, whatever its wishes, will be forced to remain in the abortion fray going forward. And on the national scene, they seem to bring us closer to an irreconcilably polarized tale of two countries than perhaps any time since the Civil War. To analyze the political and cultural implications of the developments in these areas of deep-rooted conflict, we welcome three of the most knowledgeable and savvy commentators in the country, all returning guests to Talking Feds, and they are... Joe Lockhart, universally considered one of the top communications and public affairs professionals in the country. He's the managing director at PR firm Rational 360 and a frequent TV commentator. He was a press secretary under President Clinton from 1998 to 2000 and before then to a number of prominent officials. And after leaving government, he started the communications consulting firm Glover Park Group. Always great to welcome you back. Joe Lockhart. Glad to be here again. Allison Camerata, a journalist, author, and current anchor of CNN Newsroom Weekdays from 2 to 4 p.m., where she's very generous about letting me join the conversation. In her 30-year career, she's won countless accolades, as well as two, count them, two Emmy Awards for her coverage of George Floyd's death and for her breaking news coverage of Hurricane Maria's impact on Puerto Rico. In 2017, she published her debut novel, Amanda Wakes Up, which was selected by NPR as one of the best books of the year. Welcome back to Talking Feds, multi-talented Allison Camerata. Great to see you. And George Conway, a prominent American lawyer, a contributing columnist at the Washington Post, a co-founder of the Lincoln Project, and a founding member of Checks and Balances, a group of conservative and libertarian lawyers standing up for the rule of law. George, welcome back to Talking Feds. Glad to be here. All right, let's start with January 6th, and it seems to me that the Department of Justice 
has clearly begun to investigate events outside of the activity on the ground and the physical assault and incursion on the Capitol. So this week, the DOJ rebuffed a request from the House Oversight Committee for more details about boxes of White House records that Trump improperly removed to Mar-a-Lago. And the department said, in order to protect the integrity of our ongoing work. So this is one little tea leaf, but what does it tell us about what the department is doing or what is otherwise your sense of where they are here on the separate investigations from the actual physical melee? So I think that, um, you know, we're reading tea leaves here. We don't actually have full visibility, obviously, into what's going on with either investigation. It's pretty clear that they're looking much more directly at Trump, probably, in in connection with the classified materials that were taken to Mar-a-Lago, which is understandable because he took them. And so they're, they're clearly zeroed in on him there. Now, with respect to the January 6th investigations, the attorney general has said, we're going to work our way up. We're going to go where the facts lead us to. And you can argue, and many people are arguing, and I have argued that, okay, this is all consistent with that, what they've been doing. They've been working their way up. They started with the foot soldiers on Capitol Hill, and now they're starting to get to the organizers and they're working their way up in that way. And I think the the counter view, which I have some sympathy for, is that, well, that's fine, but that's going to take you forever, and you should also be launching a second front, which would be much higher up, and then you could meet somewhere, I guess, and hopefully not someplace like Kiev. Uh, So that would be a great thing. I think that what they're doing is working their way up the slow way, and the question is whether that's going to be sufficient to fully carry out the task that the attorney general has set for himself, which is to investigate everyone, including people who weren't there on January 6th. But Harry, I have a question for you and George. I mean, this is is a detail. It's a small potatoes question, but he had the boxes at Mar-a-Lago. As George just said, they're classified information in there. That's a violation of the Presidential Records Act. Isn't that one easy to prove? I mean, I know that all of this is part of a piece and that they're trying to prove much bigger crimes, but that one seems red-handed. Why isn't anything happening with that? I mean, obviously something is. I mean, if you're telling Congress they can't even look at the list of the materials that Trump took to Mar-a-Lago, I mean, you're shutting them down completely. So it does suggest that a lot is happening right there right now. And it does suggest that they're taking it very, very seriously. But even the simplest criminal cases take some time to unravel. And I think they're going to have to go and try to figure out how did this happen? Did he just tell people carelessly, yeah, just pack all the stuff up in the private residence. And he didn't think about whether that stuff included classified material or did he sort through it a little bit? Or did he have someone else sort through it a little bit? Were they instructed to look for certain things? Those facts need to be fully investigated, I think, before the Justice Department could actually bring a prosecution, even of a simple set of circumstances. And that's like what I suppose they're doing. I mean, it's not as easy as, as you know, Sandy Berger sticking archives documents in his socks. It's a little more complicated than that. And there are a lot of people involved because we know Donald Trump did not pack his own boxes like the rest of us probably would have. Let me add just a few things, however. So first of all, 
as George says, we know they're working on it, and it also suggests by implication that they haven't given the same tap on the shoulder in some of the bigger ticket items to the 1-6 committee and said, you know, back away here. So we know there's some activity. That's one. Two, it is an area that we know the department and the executive branch takes really seriously, and there have been, Sandy Berger and other, they prosecuted in the past. Three, I think there is at least circumstantial evidence. This includes some memorabilia, like the letter that Obama leaves him and the present from Korea that you think it wouldn't have been by happenstance. And I think finally what's going on, they're investigating it, but small potatoes is the right word, Allison. I think they can put this case together pretty easily. I think it's low-hanging fruit. But is the first prosecution of a former president ever going to be for a violation, even a demonstrable one and a criminal one, of the Presidential Records Act? So in, in that sense, I think it's a very good illustration of the whole broader problem that's frustrating the country and making the DOJ move so methodically, which is the whole shoot at the king issue. I'll throw in that um, I think Sandy Berger pled guilty to a misdemeanor right, uh, with no time. So... And that was pretty brazen. What he did <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, he's sticking documents in his socks. Sandy, in addition to having a good lawyer, had a great PR person, um, me. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Can I take a broader view on this? George says he's sympathetic to the other side, the people who want things to move more quickly. I'm sympathetic to the point of view that he expressed. But I think I fall a little bit on the other side for a couple of reasons. One is the Mueller problem, which is by the time he got there, no one cared anymore. And Barr was able to manipulate that because nobody cared anymore as far as the general public. The second point is what Merrick Garland has said over and over again is he wants to depoliticize the Department of Justice. The problem is doing it the way he's doing it is a political decision. By definition, there are half a dozen to a dozen members of Congress up for re-election right now who could have committed crimes, and their voters are not going to be able to know what they did. There are enormous political implications, and I think for one thing, he should stop saying, I'm depoliticizing, because he's not. And if you use the normal Justice Department guidelines to methodically build your case, we may get to the point where Donald Trump is running for president and has a lead on Joe Biden, and they're still sort of rubbing their hands together. And then they get to the point where they can't do anything. I mean, that point may be if he's actually the candidate, right? I mean, can you imagine the running presidential candidate in the Republican Party? And that's when you do United States versus Donald Trump. Man, that'd be tricky, right? Well, I mean, especially with Comey, yeah. with that experience, I, yeah. I would imagine they never want to go there again. On the other hand, my favorite election of all time in the 70s was in uh, Newark, New Jersey, where both candidates were under indictment. <laughs> That's great. But were they in prison? Wasn't Buddy Cianci in Providence actually like running from prison? Because that's one of my favorites. Favorite indictments for 800. Okay. <laughs> yeah. I think you raised a really interesting point about Mueller. Let's now move to the committee. And the big news of the week there was the vice chair, Liz Cheney, expresses with confidence and makes it seem like there's no dispute within the ranks of the committee that there's sufficient evidence to charge Trump with a crime. 
And the question is whether or not to do a criminal referral. And the reason I think Mueller casts a shadow there is he taking himself as constrained by DOJ policy not to indict took the extra sort of Boy Scout step of not even saying that a crime had been committed and it created obfuscation and a big hole that Trump and Barr and others could drive through. So how do you see this question playing out in the committee to refer or not to refer? I'll start. I think they're already promised, in essence, a criminal referral if they make the determination that a crime was likely committed. So they're more than a little bit pregnant. And I think that from a political standpoint, it would fall flat for them to say, oh, sorry, we're not going to make a criminal referral. That said, I understand the point of view of people who are saying, oh, if you call it a criminal referral, it's going to put too much pressure on the Justice Department and it's going to make it look political. I understand that view, but I think we're already there. On the other hand, whether you call it a referral or not has no practical meaning. All of us on this call could write a letters to Merrick Garland saying you should investigate such and so and so and so. And those are referrals, but it doesn't have a legal significance. I think the most important thing, whether or not they actually use the word referral, is that they go through the evidence. And if they make the conclusion that based upon that evidence, that a crime was likely to have committed, they should say so in clear and unambiguous, non muller esque terms and not do this bit like Mueller did. Mueller, you know, he had the Justice Department OLC rulings that you can't indict a president, but he could have just said, we think there's enough to charge, but we can't charge it. Instead, he uses gobbledygook like, we can't not say that there wasn't a crime that we didn't find or something like that, and using as many negatives as possible in a sentence. Yeah, I think what Liz Cheney was doing was was not by accident. It was well-planned. It was a political rather than a legal maneuver, politically to buy some time. But what politicians do is they set expectations, and they set them in a way where they can exceed those expectations. So saying clearly that the president committed a crime locks them in to saying that in some way. It's kind of the anti-Mueller strategy. The predicate for all of this now is he's committed a crime, so we want to ask what crime, as opposed to has he committed a crime. Very deliberate that she said it, very deliberate that it was Liz Cheney, a Republican, who said it, and it has set the committee up with no choice but to say in one shape or form, the president of the United States committed a crime. But Joe, the part that I don't understand about that is why buy time? I mean, I think also part of the Mueller problem is that, I mean, I know from having reported on it every single day, you know, it was this trickle of information every day. It was coming out piecemeal. We reported it on it every day and it just sort of wore everyone down. And so don't they have to move with alacrity? Why are we buying time at this point? Well, I think they have to buy time because they're not finished. And, and where I'm really sympathetic to George's point of view is you only get one shot here. And if there's a bunch of holes in your argument, people like me make it look like there's nothing there. So they have to get it exactly right. That takes time. It feels like from reading the newspaper, they are now getting to the, you know, the top of the rotten fish. Again, I think Cheney's announcement signals that they'll have something to say fairly soon. There's no other reason for her to go out and say that. But the people running those committee, that committees are very smart. 
and they know that the whatever they do has to be perfect or it will be like Trump in the Mueller report where they discredited the whole thing because there was some gobbledygook in it. Yeah, that seems right to me. And they are a really smart committee. I just want to add that perfect here, I think, means perfect for prime time. In other words, they're going to want to take a minimum of chances and choreograph each day's proceedings very carefully with solid witnesses and clean, well-prepared testimony rather than going for the jugular, but possibly falling flat. So what's what's your best guess on how close? I mean, I like to operate in sort of expectations and what date we should be imagining that they will be wrapping things up. I mean, the scuttlebutt is that they're going to start holding public hearings in May or late May. That's the consensus scuttlebutt. Whether that's true or not, I, I don't have direct knowledge, but they can't really go much later, I think, than that. Yeah, I, I, I think you have to work back from the finish line, and the finish line is the midterm elections. If they have enough that they think the president should be charged, that becomes a massive political question for every Republican running for office. They will all be asked, do you still support Donald Trump? They will all say yes. That's an interesting piece of information for their voters, that even though he's committed a crime, we're still with him. And if I'm out running a congressional campaign for a Democrat, that's exactly what I want. That's something that you can drive a truck through. And in close races with independents, it might turn a number of races. So I think everybody on that committee knows when election day is. You know, so May and June would make sense, but certainly not October. And you, you can't do it in June or July because if everybody's not paying attention and in the fall, you're in the middle of the silly season already and it'll turn into a circus. All right. So they've got some big decisions to make. And if anything, they have a surfeit of material to try to winnow down and present in optimal fashion. Let's leave it there for now. I'd like to move on to Biden's Rose Garden announcement on firearms this week. He highlighted the DOJ's work on new regulations to crack down on ghost guns. DOJ statistics show that nearly 24,000 of them were recovered by law enforcement at crime scenes. These are basically guns that are untraceable. Pro-gun groups immediately announced their opposition, and they're going to fight back. I don't mean this rhetorically, though. It's going to sound that way. What the hell? How can you be against regulation of ghost guns. What are they really thinking? Just anything involving firearms? Look, there's no logic. Why would any logical person believe that we should have ghost guns on our streets that can't be traced, that you can circumvent having to go to a real human being and a real gun shop to buy, and that you can buy online? I mean, this is not what the founders intended if you're going to fall back onto the second amendment it's just it's terrifying that, that our streets are flooded with them allison you should not apply logic to this the same logic elected donald trump as president i've gone head to head with the nra many times and their philosophy is that any restrictions on gun ownership is a slippery slope to taking all guns away and their core members believe that. They believe if you do anything to restrict their ability, even something crazy like having a ghost gun, it will lead to repeal of the Second Amendment. Clearly, that's wrong. 
But they've argued that position for 30 years. And for 30 years, that position has held the day. And my guess is while Democrats will work around the margins on this, there will not be a lot of progress. And I, I'll use two things that I think support that. One is Bill Clinton passed the Brady Bill and I think lost 66 seats shortly thereafter. It still scares politicians. Whether it should or not is an open question. The second is we crossed the Rubicon with Sandy Hook when kids were killed and we did nothing. So this is a problem that our country has decided we can't solve and we can't even address it except at the margins. That's right. I, I totally agree. We've also decided this is an occupational hazard of our democracy. We've decided that mass shootings, they're so unpleasant, but this is something that we're just going to have to live with because Congress can't figure it out. Nobody wants to vote against these guns. And so um, every day we just cross our fingers. We hope our kids in school aren't sitting ducks. We hope that we can get on the subway without being mowed down. But, you know, this is just kind of the price of admission. I think what you guys have said is absolutely right there. I, there's no form of regulation that doesn't trigger that slippery slope argument response from the NRA and the gun lobby. I think the ghost gun prohibition would be perfectly constitutional in the Second Amendment, even as the Supreme Court has interpreted it. But nothing's going to happen. And, you know, at the end of the day, even if something did happen there, you still have many, many guns that even if they're traceable are still acquirable. And I don't know that somebody like the guy who was in Brooklyn the other day cares whether or not his gun has a serial number on it. So, you know, you, unless you're able to, which wouldn't be inconsistent with the second, I mean, confiscate all guns, this is a problem we have to find some way to resolve in some fashion, but it's not going to involve gun regulation. Here's what I want to know, George. Let's talk about the guy yesterday, because I am fascinated by his history and what led him to this subway. So Frank James had nine prior arrests from 1992 to 1998 in a host of different cities. Let me just pull up for you some of the array of arrests. He had possession of burglary tools four times, a criminal sex act, theft of service twice. He had criminal tampering. He had three arrests in New Jersey for trespassing and disorderly conduct. All of that happened before he bought that gun. So he bought that gun in Ohio in 2011, apparently legally. And so why don't gun shop owners bear any responsibility for selling a gun to a mentally unhinged violent person? Why don't we ever look at the gun shop owners and say, what's their culpability in this? I think they have, but it's impossible to get your arms around gun shows. I live in Portland, Maine, and within a half an hour of Portland, Maine is very rural country. And in every little town, there's a gun shop. And in every little town, there's a billboard that says, you know, gun show June 15th. I said before it was hopeless. That's probably too strong. The way that this could happen is to change the law to remove the protection to the gun manufacturers. If the gun manufacturers can be held responsible for the gun they built killing someone, that has a chilling effect. I was in the middle of all the stuff we were doing with tobacco, and 
the litigation against those companies crippled those companies and it, it forced them to change the way they did their business and change the way for the good to do their business. So until someone figures out how to do that, I, I just view that as the only hope. You know, there have been efforts to do it on the civil side. And the other thing is you learn again and again. I mean, Biden made this point in the Rose Garden that a very small number of dealers are responsible for a very high proportion of grime guns. Now, of course, they tend to say, well, we're just high volume dealers and that's just luck of the draw. In fact, it strikes me talking about the the shooter in, in Brooklyn, Allison, that's sort of a perfect Rorschach test, among others, like people from other countries think, how crazy can this country be to let guns in the hands of a guy who's had the nine arrests and everything you say? And pro-gun types say, well, look, a crazy thing like this gun regulation wouldn't solve. And you would think an incident like this would move the needle towards sensible regulation. But the two sides are so entrenched that even the most gruesome kind of assault doesn't seem to move them rhetorically in the least. Yeah, but I'm still confused because if it's possible, and I hear what Joe's saying, that that is one avenue that could change this, that if you held the people responsible who built the gun, why not hold the people responsible who sold the gun? I mean, again, the reason I ask this, and I hear what you're saying, Joe, about gun shows. However, if there were a database that collected some of these things, it wouldn't be that hard to figure out who had multiple arrests. And by the way, if you spoke to this guy, there could even be literally like a five question screening that you have to ask if you're a gun shop owner that would have surfaced this man's unhingedness. All of his neighbors knew he was unhinged. And people who lived next door to him who didn't interact with him knew he was unhinged. This wasn't buried. And why don't we hold them more responsible? If we're going to hold the gun manufacturers responsible, why not the gun sellers? It goes back to what I said before, which is the slippery slope theory. The NRA and the gun lobby will oppose any sort of regulation because it's their view that if you do one thing, there's something behind it and behind that. I mean, it's not true. In the Clinton administration, we passed the Brady Bill. Uh, unfortunately, we had a 10-year sunset in it. So in 2004, it went away. And what was in the Brady Bill was actually effective. And there are statistics that prove that, but it went away. So I don't know enough about the regulations to answer specifically why gun show owners are not held responsible. But the interpretation of existing law is that gun skill people, not who you bought it from or who you made it. This was my signature thing I tried to do as U.S. attorney. And as Joe says, there are such sensible things to do at the legal level, universal background checks or ghost guns. But the NRA, which can basically make half the Congress stand up and salute, takes this view that you can't change a hair on its pretty little head, nothing to be done. There have been effective like local programs, and Biden came out of the box talking about them on Monday, where even if the law isn't changed, if the local law and federal law enforcement are really zeroing in on these dealers and putting pressure on them, that seemed to have really resulted in short-term improvements, but then administrations change and the priority goes away and we're back to where we were. Actually, back to much more than where we were, because one of the puzzles here is that under COVID, 
deaths by guns have gone up something like 30, 40%, by far the biggest spike since the diminution in the 80s. So it really does seem like not just a deadlock, but a really increasingly tragic one. The political point is the NRA is not necessarily the powerful gun lobby that it used to be, given some of the things they went through. But it's been replaced by the Trump polarization, which is if you're a Trump supporter, you support everything he supports. You do not disagree with anything he says. And even if you were for gun control, which, by the way, he was before he ran for president, you won't say that because you have to stay with your tribe. So I think that probably is going to prevent more aggressive gun legislation or regulation than the NRA. And I just think it's an important point that when you talk about the gun lobby, you have to include the Trumpers. And that is a much bigger group and a much more powerful group. I think that's right. And they have this reflexive uh, view. I mean, that's an explanation for why nothing's ever okay, because if the other side supports it, I'm against it. Quick last question here. It's feeling like a pessimistic uh, landscape overall. Will Steve Dettelbach get confirmed when his predecessor nominee, they just hung out to dry forever? And if so, is there any meaningful contribution he makes to this whole mess or not really? My prediction is uh, it's not a prediction. We just don't know. Yeah. I, I wouldn't be optimistic, but sometimes really good lawyers uh, like George outsmart really good politicians. And it, it is possible. But, you know, my guess is it will be a long time before it works because this will be in court. And we all know how long that takes. So true. The wheels of justice turn slowly, as the saying goes. It's now time to take a moment for our sidebar feature, which explains some of the issues and relationships that are prominent in the news. And today's topic is the possible disqualification of members of Congress under Section 3 of the 14th Amendment. There are lawsuits afoot to challenge the inclusion on the ballot of members such as Madison Cawthorn and Marjorie Taylor Greene because of their role in the events of January 6th. And to explain the topic, we are thrilled to welcome the one and only Carol King, arguably the most important female popular songwriter of the 20th century. Among the dozens of hits she wrote with Jerry Goffin in the 1960s were Will You Love Me Tomorrow, Take Good Care of My Baby, The Locomotion, Up on the Roof, Chains, and dozens more. And of course, these were all recorded by other artists. And in 1967, Natural Woman was immortalized by Aretha Franklin. Then, with her 1971 solo album, Tapestry, Carol achieved immortality as a singer-songwriter and earned four Grammy Awards. Tapestry was recently certified 14 times platinum and has sold over 30 million copies worldwide. Her other many, many awards include inclusion in the Songwriters Hall of Fame, the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, the BMI Icon Award, the Gershwin Prize for Popular Song, and the Kennedy Center Honors. And in 2021, she was inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame for the second time, becoming the first musician ever to be inducted as a songwriter and performer. I give you Carol King explaining disqualification of members of Congress 
under Section 3 of the 14th Amendment. Disqualification of members of Congress under Section 3 of the 14th Amendment. Voters have brought suit to challenge the eligibility of North Carolina Representative Madison Cawthorn and Georgia Representative Marjorie Taylor Greene from running for Congress again after their terms expire. The voter lawsuits are based on Section 3 of the 14th Amendment to the Federal Constitution. The provision states that no person shall be a senator or representative in Congress who, having previously taken an oath to support the Constitution of the United States, shall have engaged in insurrection or rebellion against the same. Section 3, along with the rest of the 14th Amendment, was enacted in the wake of the Civil War to prevent the former rebels from returning to Congress. Congress applied it to keep several former rebels from sitting, but then passed a general amnesty in 1872 that permitted former rebels to serve. But the provision remains in force, and in fact, Congress applied it during World War I to refuse to seat Victor Berger, who was then under indictment for violations of the Espionage Act, largely as a result of his socialist writings. The important thing to understand about Section 3 is that it states a qualification to be in Congress. The Constitution has very few of those. You have to live in the district you're representing, be at least 25 years old, and have been a U.S. citizen for seven years. Typically, a voter in your state challenges qualifications before a board of elections and thereafter to the courts, and if the challenge is successful, your name is removed from the ballot. Although it is not as cut and dried, the qualification in Section 3 works the same way. Anyone who previously took an oath to support the Constitution and then engaged in insurrection simply is not qualified to be in Congress. It is no different in that respect from being, say, 24 years old. So members like Cawthorn and Green, who cheered the insurrectionists on, may be vulnerable to challenges to their eligibility to be on the ballot, particularly in states such as North Carolina that define engaging in insurrection as doing anything useful or necessary to help the effort. Both Cawthorn and Green have responded with countersuits, saying that the voter challenges are flawed. Cawthorn won a decision in federal district court that is now on appeal saying Congress had effectively overwritten the constitutional provision in the 1870s when it granted the amnesty. If you're wondering how an 1870s amnesty could apply to Cawthorn's actions 150 years later, you aren't alone. The challenges to Cawthorn's and Green's eligibility will need to be resolved in short order because states are going to have to decide who's qualified to appear on the ballot in plenty of time for the midterms. For Talking Feds, I'm Carol King. Thank you very much, Carol King, for the explanation of that important and kind of difficult topic. In addition to her musical career, Carol King has been working for 32 years with scientists, environmental advocates, and organizations in the Northern Rockies to preserve wilderness and biodiversity in that ecosystem. 
She's a longtime advocate for the Northern Rockies Ecosystem Protection Act, a climate solution that will preserve 23 million acres of national forests. All right, it is now time for a spirited debate brought to you by our sponsor, Total Wine and More. Each episode, you'll be hearing an expert talk about the pros and cons of a particular issue in the world of wine, spirit, and beverages. Thank you, Harry. In today's spirited debate, we look at three different techniques for making rosé wine to see if there's truly a best way to rosé. First, Rosé is a type of wine that's actually produced quite similarly to reds, but the fermentation time of the grape is reduced, giving rosé its signature pink color. The first technique for making rosé is the skin contact method, in which black-skinned grapes such as Pinot Noir are crushed but allowed to remain in contact with the juice for a short period of time. After about 6 to 48 hours, as opposed to weeks or months for the reds, the skins are separated. This method is most frequently used in the top rosé-producing region of the world, Provence, and throughout the south of France. The second method is called saigné, which is the French word for bleeding. This method creates both a rosé and a red wine. Early in the maceration process, some of the pink juice created from the grape must is removed to make the rosé, while the remaining juice becomes a more concentrated red. A rosé made from this method tends to be richer and darker in both color and fruit flavor. This method is more rarely used, but it can be found more often in rosés from Spain, Napa, and Chile. The third method is blending. Contrary to what some people think, blending is not just a 50-50 pour of red and white wine. Instead, blending is where a white grape, such as Chardonnay, is blended with a red grape, and it's the most popular way to make a rosé champagne. Although popular in champagne, this method is used in still rosés as well. In fact, some winemakers in Provence choose to blend small percentages of white grape varieties into their rosés. It's not always obvious or easy to know which method was used to make a particular rosé, but the expert guides at Total Wine & More can help you navigate our wondrous selection to find a rosé that makes your day. So find what you love and love what you find, only at Total Wine & More. Cheers! And remember, always think interesting, drink interesting. Thanks to our friends at Total Wine and More for today's A Spirited Debate. So we're talking about pretty high-profile events and very visible you know, polarization and fissures. But at the same time, in the last few months, as especially the country hunkers down and awaits a Supreme Court decision remaking the landscape of abortion law, there's been a not-always-noticed wave of state legislation on social issues, especially from red states, though really from blue as well. This has been the most active year for restrictive abortion legislation since Roe v. Wade. And when Oklahoma passed its bill, they said, we want Oklahoma to be the most pro-life state in the country. It's almost as if there's a competition to see who can be the most severe. 
So I wonder if you have any thoughts about what's going to happen in these states with these very extreme bills. Will there be a backlash? Are we really going to have these primitive and arch situations where women just can't get an abortion at all anywhere in the state borders of the most radical states here? I mean, it's already happening. It's already happening. Texas and others are following suit, as you point out. And I, I have never understood how these officials simultaneously want to outlaw abortion and deny access to birth control. Why do you do those two in tandem? Because unwanted pregnancies don't go away just when you outlaw abortion. There's ample evidence it doesn't cut down on unwanted pregnancies, outlawing abortion. So instead of making birth control more available, they make it less available and they run Planned Parenthood out and it just becomes a a totally draconian horror show. I mean, it's a horror show. And I so resent the fact that somehow the anti-abortion folks have tried to claim this moral high ground that they're protecting babies because what about the women? I mean, the fact that in Texas, there's no exception for rape and incest. So I guess we just don't care once a person is born about their fate, but we just have to protect in utero (sighs) embryos. And so it just doesn't make any sense. And I don't know what's about to happen in Texas. I do know that I hear from all sorts of people, my kids are, are getting ready to go to college and that all sorts of people are like, they can't, they don't want to send their daughters to Texas now. Texas has great colleges. There's a million colleges that all of our daughters should be looking at, but why support a state? like that, that has made clear how they feel about women. Obviously, this rests on what the Supreme Court does, and we can all do our predictions about what justice is where, but if the Supreme Court rules against, I think it's Mississippi they're looking at, if they say that's unconstitutional, it doesn't go away, but it gets deferred, and the most draconian of this is not implemented around the country. I think there are two political things here that need to be considered. One that's not known yet, which is what do women and sympathetic men do when this happens? Taking to the streets and having a march is a good news story, but will women vote against Republicans based on their own self-interest and their need to have access to abortion? That is an open question in my mind. Remember, Donald Trump I can't remember the numbers in 2020, but in 2016, got 52% of white women advocating for what he was advocating. I think the other one, which is very dangerous, is it further polarizes the country. And we become one country that's regional, one country that most of the wealth is amassed, and one country that is very happy that church and God comes first but they will suffer disproportionately, I think, for economic reasons, if people take this seriously. I'm in the the business of trying to help companies think about what's around the corner. And what's around the corner is, if the Supreme Court rules in favor of Mississippi, their employees will think twice about working for that company if that company remains based in Texas the tech companies that compete fiercely for engineers, 
those young engineers are going to say, I'm not going to work for one guy because they're still in Texas. I'm going to work for the other. So there's enormous pressure on these companies to do something. And again, probably the biggest stick that exists is economic here. If Texas uh, or Florida's economy falls apart, that will change the dynamic. And my guess is change the law, but that won't happen right away. We're on the brink of being two countries. And this may be the thing that pushes us over and maybe even codify that we are two different countries. I wanted to stick with the court for a second. And George, let me ask you, because unless the court really says, I mean, they could overrule and still have some lip service for some interests for women's rights. If these statutes continue to pass in states like Oklahoma, doesn't it more or less guarantee that the court has to stay in the abortion business? Won't there be a blockbuster case after blockbuster case because people will be pushing it more and more? And what does that auger for the court? It's terrible for the court. I think Roe v. Wade was terrible for the court. Roe v. Wade got the court into a business that it wasn't capable of resolving. I think it was an offshoot of the civil rights era. The court did have a business getting into civil rights and desegregating the schools because that's what the 14th Amendment required. And then I think the court, this is my own idiosyncratic view of it all, or maybe not so idiosyncratic, but thought it could resolve other issues as easily. And abortion just wasn't one of them. We are the one nation in the West that has this level of controversy and division over abortion in a way that no other country has. And it's because it was never allowed to percolate its way through the system. I mean, in 1973, states like New York, there was a wave of liberalization of abortion laws. The Supreme Court basically declaring without textual or historical basis that this rigid trimester system is the law. It cut short that discussion where, where that would have required people to figure out compromises and to figure out, OK, well, there's this value here. We understand at some point we can't abort the fetus. Uh, and then the other people would have to understand at some point you can't restrict women like this because they're going to go out and get abortions anyway. And it's it's dangerous. You know, that discussion was completely short circuited and it became this polarized discussion of either you believe this on the one extreme or this on the other extreme, and we never reach the compromises that other countries have managed to reach. And I think it's a shame. And I think the problem is for the Supreme Court is you can't go back to 1973. Yeah, that's the question. I you guess. can't. You can't. The time to overrule Roe was in 1989, when it was only 16 years old. We're, we're now 48 years down the pipe. Yeah. 49. And the issue will never go away. It's like this curse. Once they got into it, they can't get out of it. And it's a shame because it's having precisely the effect that Joe describes. Everything is black and white. It is either you are murdering children or you are enslaving women. And the discussion completely lacks nuance. But somehow other countries have managed to do it. And the irony is that, you know, from a political standpoint, Let's leave apart the question of federalism in 50 states, because you can always end up with 50 answers because of 50 states. It's always been true, and I think Joe might uh, has probably seen the data, that's always been true that if you actually ask people what their views on when abortion should be legal is, it actually comes out more restrictive than Roe v. Wade, but not not as restrictive as Mississippi. 
And so we could have had peace on this issue if the court had never gotten into it. And actually, the irony is that one of the things that Ruth Bader Ginsburg had trouble about during her confirmation hearings was she had written an article that said the Supreme Court went a little bit too far in Roe v. Wade by striking down all these statutes. It should have just struck down the Texas statute at issue there and kind of worked its way slowly into the issue without setting this rigid trimester system that got everybody saying, where do you come off making those determinations? It's like legislation. I'm sure you're going to hear in the opinions, I can hear Justice Kavanaugh writing it, that this is what we need in order to return this to the states and the democratic process. But 2023 is not 1973. So if the polarization is just too entrenched, that's going to do two things. One, just completely aggravate the proto-civil war that Joe talks about, but also bring it back to the court again and again and again. No one will ever be happy with what the Supreme Court does. But part of the problem the Supreme Court has to own. The politicization of everything in this country, politics, law, has invaded every part of this country. And I think in the aftermath of Bush v. Gore, at least for Democrats, they viewed the Supreme Court as a political body. There have been a number of decisions where conservatives view it as a political body. And more and more, if you look closely at the justification for why they're interpreting the law the way they are has less to do than with the Constitution and more with where they think this country should be culturally. And everybody can make an argument. If they decide culturally we should ban abortion, a good lawyer, and they're all good lawyers, can find some justification someplace. And it's sad because most people now don't trust any branch of government. And I don't think the Supreme Court has done anything. Well, they haven't done enough to demonstrate their independence from politics. These statutes, by the way, the heartbeat bills start to pass and you have basically what's a religious deep, deep division that lands in the Supreme Court. Can a state declare basically life begins at conception? We don't have time to talk about another aspect of this that's been happening, which is the laws in certain states about education, especially involving LGBTQ points. I just wanted to ask Allison if you have any final thoughts about this most sobering and broad point that both Joe and George are making, which is a country truly divided, the sense that we're moving quickly and irrevocably toward, you know, a braided together red and blue, but completely foreign and even hostile to one another. Does it seem that grim to you, I guess I would say? Yes, it does. And it's a crying shame. And I think that moreover, the people in those states don't care. I think that the people in blue states are happy to not interact with people in red states. And people in red states are happy to not interact with people in blue states because we've so vilified the other person that, you know, we're just not that open to civil discourse. We're just not that open to hearing their point of view. It's it's a shame. Obviously, I have a lot of thoughts on how we got here, but we're very siloed. And I don't know, given our media landscape and, you know, just what we've talked about, all of our already geographic silos, I don't know how we get out. 
All right. And that's all the time we have on this upbeat episode. <laughs> Thanks for so, sharing us yeah. off, listeners. We, we, well, I don't know what we'll cover next week. Something, something uh, frothy and uh, with, with music. But we have one minute left uh, for our Talking Five feature where we take a question from a listener and each of us has to answer in five words or fewer. And uh, this one goes off the big move from Elon Musk this week, who's offered $41 billion to buy all of Twitter so, question is, cost aside, which company would you most want to buy and why? I, I'd like to buy Twitter. <laughs> I wish I had $44 billion and I could outbid him. Can I say, George, that you already own Twitter? <laughs> <laughs> well, I want full control of it. Yeah. That would be great, actually. I think you deserve to buy Twitter. I think that would be better than Elon Musk. I think that'd be great. We don't trust the government or the courts, but we all trust George. Yes, we all trust George. in George we trust. There you go. That's the, the new motto. I'll go next. Um, it has to be in uh, five words. So Fox News, massive layoffs. <laughs> yes, all right. And one word to spare, okay. These are these are such great answers. I mean, they're such they're so great answers, and I feel that mine is a companion piece to that, which is Casa Azul Tequila. <laughs> that that feels like a final resort. <laughs> After this podcast, Casa Azul Tequila. Yeah. Yeah. This is the most ambitious of of all, but uh, still, fix the New York Knicks. <laughs> Forget that. Forget that. That's impossible. Waste of money. All right. We are out of time. Thank you very much to Allison, Joe, and George. And thank you very much, listeners, for tuning in to Talking Feds. If you like what you've heard, please tell a friend to subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or wherever they get their podcasts. And please take a moment to rate and review this podcast. We're available on the Spectrum News app, which provides local stories, weather, and information that matter to you and your community. Download the Spectrum News app on your Apple or Android device. And we also now have our own YouTube channel, so check that out, Talking Feds YouTube. You can follow us on Twitter at Talking Feds Pod to find out about future episodes and other Feds-related content. You can check us out on the web, TalkingFeds.com, and you can look to see our latest offerings on Patreon, where we post discussions about special topics exclusively for supporters. Just up my discussion with Gretchen Carlson, former Fox News reporter, about her successful efforts to pass a law making it less difficult for victims of sexual harassment in the workplace to bring lawsuits in federal court. And we have several other good ones coming in the next few days. So check out patreon.com slash talkingfeds. Submit your questions to questions at talkingfeds.com. Whether it's for Talking Five or general questions about the inner workings of the legal system for our sidebar segments. Thanks for tuning in. And don't worry, as long as you need answers, the feds will keep talking. Talking Feds is produced by Mal Meliez, associate producer Olivia Henriksen, assistant producer Matt McArdle, sound engineering by Adam Macias. Rosie Don Griffin and David Lieberman are our contributing writers. Production assistants by Rhea Cohen-Gilbert, Kalena Tano, and Emma Maynard. Thanks very much to the inimitable Carol King, 
for explaining disqualification of members of Congress under the 14th Amendment. Our gratitude, as always, to the amazing Philip Glass, who graciously lets us use his music. Talking Feds is a production of Dolito LLC. I'm Harry Littman. Talk to you later. Bye.